Unit Three, Listening B. The tutor. Now, of course, our sun is just one star out of billions in the Milky Way. We don't know exactly how many stars there are, but current estimates put it somewhere between two hundred and four hundred billion. Jenny. I think I'm right in saying most astrophysicists now think the Milky Way came into existence as a galaxy somewhere between 6.5 and 10.1 billion years ago. That's right, isn't it? Ahmed. One thing that amazed me was how old the oldest star in the Milky Way is. I mean, I knew our sun was quite young, being formed about 4.6 billion years ago. But to think that the oldest star in the Milky Way was created about 13.2 billion years ago, even before the Milky Way itself—well, that's incredible. Unit three, listening C. Right, shall we start? So I asked you for this week's seminar to do some research into what we think is going to happen to the Milky Way in the future. Before we do that, let's just remind ourselves about some key facts about the Milky Way. Jenny, how old is our galaxy? I think I'm right in saying most astrophysicists now think the Milky Way came into existence as a galaxy somewhere between 6.5 and 10.1 billion years ago. That's right, isn't it? Indeed, it is. Good. Ahmed, does that mean all the stars in the Milky Way are younger than that? No, it doesn't. One thing that amazed me was how old the oldest star in the Milky Way is. I mean, I knew our sun was quite young, being formed about 4.6 billion years ago. But to think that the oldest star in the Milky Way was created about 13.2 billion years ago, even before the Milky Way itself—well, that's incredible. You have to understand that the Milky Way was initially formed by things such as stars already in existence. So actually, it's hardly surprising that some stars in the galaxy. Are older than the galaxy itself, but you're right; it is very old. Now, of course, our sun is just one star out of billions in the Milky Way. We don't know exactly how many stars there are, but current estimates put it somewhere between two hundred and four hundred billion. But let's just think for a minute about our solar system in relation to the Milky Way, Jenny. Well, just as the Earth goes round the Sun, our solar system goes round the center of the Milky Way. It takes quite a long time to go all the way round, though, approximately 225 to 250 million years to complete one revolution or orbit. Very good. And what is each revolution around the Milky Way called, Ahmed? A galactic year. And what else do we know about galactic years? Well, they're also called cosmic years. As Jenny said, they last about 250 million years, and we think there have been somewhere between 20 and 25 of them since the formation of the sun. Yes, and to put that in some perspective, since humans first appeared on Earth, we've only had about 0.0000. Of one galactic year.
Unit three, listening D. Let's come on to what's going to be quite a large event in the future of the Milky Way. Jenny, what's Andromeda? Well, Andromeda is a spiral galaxy like the Milky Way. It's about two and a half million light years away, which makes it the Milky Way's nearest neighbor. In fact, you can just see it with the naked eye on a clear night. But I suppose the most important thing about Andromeda is that it's moving towards the Milky Way at a rate of 120 kilometers per second, and the theory is that Andromeda and the Milky Way will collide together in somewhere between three and six billion years from now. Absolutely. Now I do want to emphasize that some astrophysicists do disagree about the numbers. Some say that the two galaxies will start merging in only a couple of billion years, and we're still not 100% sure that the galaxies will hit each other. But let's go with our best guess for now, which is that in several billion years, Andromeda and the Milky Way are going to collide. Before that, of course, as Andromeda gets closer, it'll become brighter and clearer in the Earth's night sky. Ahmed, tell us what's likely to happen between now and the collision. Well, as you said, in about three billion years, the stars and gases of Andromeda will become even more visible to the naked eye here on Earth. But of course, it's highly unlikely there'll be any humans on Earth to witness it as the sun's hotting up. In one or two billion years, radiation from the sun will almost certainly have made the Earth totally uninhabitable and lifeless. But let's say we do witness it somehow. What will we see? Well, we probably won't see many stars smashing into each other because the distance between stars is so great. It's quite possible for two galaxies, both with billions and billions of stars, to merge together without a single star hitting another star. Amazing, really, when you think about it. Unit three. Speaking A. Candidate one. Well, I'm now twenty. Over the next sixty years, let's say, we're going to see enormous changes because of global warming. The climate's going to change, and the sea levels going to rise. So there may be some cities now, like maybe New York, that will be underwater, and other places that are really cold now, like Siberia in Russia, may become much warmer. So more people will choose to live there. Candidate two. I'm quite optimistic. I think people here will have a better health system, and so will live longer. And I think the education system will improve too, meaning people will get better qualifications and better jobs. It's possible that I'm wrong, but I'm actually looking forward to the next two decades. We'll see what happens. Candidate three. Well, it's impossible to know for sure, of course, but I think that in the year three thousand or so, people won't just live on Earth. We'll also be living on other planets. At least I hope so. But to come back to your question, unfortunately, I think by then a lot of animal and plant life here on Earth will have become extinct. Candidate four. That's an interesting question. I'd say that over the next ten or twenty years or so, 
We'll see the technology that we've already got, you know, computers, mobile phones, that kind of thing, get much faster and more powerful and cheaper. But I think it's highly unlikely we'll have things like personal flying cars or robots doing the housework at home. Unit 3. Pronunciation 1. I haven't read my horoscope yet, but I'll read it in a minute. 2. When are they going to present the leaving present? 3. Are you content with the content of the article? 4. I hope I'll be performing live for as long as I live. 5. We'll look at these minute particles through a microscope in a minute. 6. When the clown takes a bow, his bow tie will fall off. Unit 3. Exam Practice. Listening. You'll hear a tutor and two students discussing modern European writers. First, you have some time to look at questions 1 to 6. Now listen carefully and answer questions 1 to 6. Okay, so to continue our look at modern European writers who have focused on the future in their work, today we're talking about H.G. Wells. Last week, I asked you both to do some background research on Wells, which we're going to discuss now. Gitanjali, tell us about H.G. Wells. Right. So... H.G. Wells was a hugely successful British science fiction writer. Writing at the end of the 19th and the start of the 20th century, and much of his work focused on predicting the future. Jason, do you think Wells was just using the future as a narrative device in his fiction? No, no. He really believed we can predict the future. In fact, he gave a speech at the Royal Institution in London in 1902 called The Discovery of the Future, and the point he was making was that by looking at what you know about the present and about science, it's quite possible to predict the future. Indeed. Gitanjali, do you think Wells was always optimistic in his predictions? Not at all. In fact, he varied in his predictions from being extremely pessimistic about the future to being optimistic. Interestingly, one theory I read links the attitude in Wells's work to his own health. When he was writing The Time Machine, which was published in 1895, he'd just been diagnosed with an incurable fatal disease. Not surprisingly, the book is very pessimistic. Being about a dystopia in the future, a long time in the future, the year 802-701 in fact, where there are two races on Earth, the Morlocks and the Eloi, and the Morlocks actually eat the Eloi. 
I thought it was interesting, though, that it was H.G. Wells who actually came up with the phrase time machine. So despite being pessimistic, the work has had a lasting effect on our culture. Right. After the time machine, though, H.G. Wells didn't die, of course. And his recovery might be why he began to be a bit more optimistic about the future. So that brings us to his first utopia, Anticipations. Jason, tell us about that. Well, Anticipations, or to give it its full title, Anticipations of the Reaction of the Mechanical and Scientific Progress Upon Human Life and Scientific Thought, was published in 1901 and was set in the New Republic of the year 2000. Some of the things Wells predicts are fairly close to our reality today, including 24-hour news, global telecommunications, and even a European Union. We'll come back to the accuracy of Wells's predictions a little later. Gitanjali, how was Wells's work received at the time? Well, although Wells was extremely successful, not everyone respected his work or his predictions. Another well-known science fiction writer, Jules Verne, viciously attacked him for works such as The First Man in the Moon, which Verne argued weren't rooted in scientific fact at all. That's right. Now, Wells wrote a number of other utopian visions of the future. Jason? Yes. In a modern utopia published in 1905, his vision was of a world where there's no private property, where everyone has access to wonderful health care, and interestingly, where everyone's personal information is stored on cards in a central database outside Paris. Apart from the healthcare, I'm not sure everyone today would see that as a positive view of the future. Neither am I. And, on a similar note, Wells strongly believed in population control and in The Shape of Things to Come, which was published in 1933, he sees and supports a world where the population is kept at 2 billion. Once again, I'm not sure most people today would necessarily see that as a good thing. Before you hear the rest of the conversation, you have some time to look at questions 7 to 10. Now listen and answer questions 7 to 10. Gitanjali, in your research, did you come across anything about the world brain? Yes, I did. It's actually very interesting. Throughout the 1930s, Wells predicted and supported the setting up of a huge world encyclopedia. And towards the end of the decade, in 1938, he wrote a series of essays called World Brain. In these essays, he called for the world to make use of modern technology to create an enormous global encyclopedia so that all our knowledge is available to all people, not just an educated elite. Wells envisioned this as probably being on microfilm. He thought it would allow anyone, anywhere in the world, to look at any book or any document. He also thought it would be created by everyone, 
once again not just by an elite. Yes, and as you can imagine, many people today say that the internet has basically fulfilled his prediction. Of course, it doesn't use microfilm, but essentially, it does meet all Wells's main requirements.